The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And this is a case where the Secret Service can make a decision that it is simply not safe for the president to go somewhere or to be in a certain situation. My impression is that, you know, people really could have died. The Rexburgers do have weapons. It could have been violent in the same way that January 6th was violent. The bad news is what we saw on January 6th, which is that this decentralized ragtag group can be called up very rapidly by a charismatic leader. And in this context, I'd put a slightly different gloss on it, which is justice too far delayed risks justice becoming impotent. I don't know how susceptible or open the DOJ would have been to that for the simple reason that taking legal action against a former president is really politically and legally challenging and politically super sensitive. The commission calls on Congress to enact legislation establishing that final goods assemblers of software, hardware, and firmware are liable for damages from incidents that exploit vulnerabilities. There are certainly circumstances in which private sector actors are used as cover in overseas operations. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 4th, 2023. Welcome to our annual Ask Us Anything episode, a hallowed Lawfare tradition. This year, Lawfare senior editors answered some of your burning questions on the Secret Service, the durability of the U.S. legal system in the wake of January 6th, the failed German coup, the classification of Mar-a-Lago documents, software supply chain cyber attacks, and even the past and current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, light stuff. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 4th. Ask us anything. How, however fortunate it may have been, by what authority does a Secret Service agent disobey a presidential directive to take him to the Capitol? Thank you. This is David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and the short answer to your question is that the authority for a Secret Service agent to not do what the president says is in 18 U.S.C. 3056, which is the governing statute for the Secret Service, which is the law which overrides presidential whim, and it does direct the Secret Service to protect. And this is a case where the Secret Service can make a decision that it is simply not safe for the president to go somewhere or to be in a certain situation and to fulfill their mission, to fulfill their oath to the Constitution, and their commitment as a sworn law enforcement officer, a Secret Service agent in charge, can make a decision that's contrary to the wishes of the president. Now, normally they try to avoid this 
in any case possible. So they'll use protective methodology to anticipate vulnerabilities before getting into that argument to try to anticipate what could happen in a situation. So it's not entirely rare, um, but it's also not common that a president will say at the spur of the moment, I want to do something. And then there's a dilemma for the Secret Service agent in charge. In the past, this has been things like inaugural parades when Jimmy Carter gets out and wants to work the crowd when that has not been part of the plan or when there's a quick movement that the president wants to make and they haven't had the chance to do uh, any of the preparation they normally would do for a presidential movement. But in general, the Secret Service tries to work these things out in advance. I'll go back to what John Wackrow, former Secret Service officer who was on protective detail, told me in an episode of Chatter this last July 2022, when he talked about their job and how they see it. They're not there to be the best friends of their protectees. The Secret Service isn't there, he said, to appease everybody and make everybody happy. They're there for a very specific reason, to make sure that the person is safe. And when it comes to the president, not only making sure the president is safe, but making sure that they protect the office of the presidency. And if that means that the president of the United States wants to go somewhere, but it would put himself in great jeopardy, and it might put the office of the presidency itself in great jeopardy, the Secret Service has a duty to not do that. I hope this helps. And if you want more context, I do encourage you to listen to that episode of Chatter from July 2022. And also for the deeper history, to listen to the Lawfare podcast episode with Carol Lennig on the history of the Secret Service that I think was in July of 2021. This question comes from a listener named Josh. Josh asks, I was really curious if you had a take on the significance or even more information about the German coup plot. To a layperson, it seemed more serious than the attention it's gotten. Is this the internationalization of Q-type conspiracy theories or a uniquely German thing? This is Quinta Jurassic, senior editor at Lawfare. So this question is referring to a coup plot in Germany that was foiled by police in the beginning of December, organized by a group of Germans that are usually called Reichsburgers, which means citizens of the Reich in, in German. And essentially, the plot involved an effort to overthrow the German government and replace it with a state modeled on the German Reich of the early 20th century under the Kaiser. Uh, so as I said, this this was foiled. Dozens of people, I think about 50, were arrested. Weapons were seized. My impression is that there's very little likelihood that this plot could have been successful in the sense of actually, you know, taking over the German government in any way. It's kind of kooky. Uh, the person who was going to take control of the government um, is a, a member of a German noble family who had been traveling around trying to get support, but it, it seems pretty hard to imagine that this could have worked. But I, my impression is that, you know, people really could have died. The Rexburgers do have weapons. It could have been violent in the same way that January 6th was violent. Um, and I definitely recommend uh, that listeners take a, a look at a great piece in Lawfare by Sam Denny, um, who has been writing about uh, the Rexburgers and about extremism in Germany. 
I think that as as Sam writes, you know, the the concern here is less that the Reichsbürgers could have actually taken over the German government in any way, and more about what it says about the rise of extremism in German society that this movement, uh, you know, seems to have gotten to a point where they thought that they could take over the government. There's been an increase in far right views um, on the German political scene, the far right party uh, alternative for Germany. Uh, there's been a rise in uh, anti-vaccine sentiment, the Kurdenkin movement, um, which, as the questioner notes, ha- kind of echoes in QAnon. And so does the Reichsberger movement. You know, there's there's a similar idea of kind of a, you know, a far right uh, movement that is worried about a shadowy deep state controlling people, possibly through vaccines. You can kind of you can see the connections between these ideas. I think as the the questioner gets to, what's kind of interesting is that in many ways, you know, uh, QAnon is very American. It has its roots, obviously, in Trumpism. Reichsbürgers are extremely German. It's an ideology that traces back to very particular experiences of what happened to Germany over the course of the 20th century and sort of arguing that the modern German state is illegitimate because of how Germany was divided after World War II. It seems kind of strange that these two things could overlap to such an extent. But I I think what that really points to is two things. One, and I'm drawing on what Sam wrote here, is that there's really an extent to which all of these ideologies are kind of a you know a melting pot with one another. You can really sort of stir them together and, and make something noxious out of them. And the other thing that I think is notable is that it speaks to the extent to which you know American media <laughs> is so prominent. Uh, you know that that the U.S. kind of broadcasts these conspiracy theories all around the world. You see this in Japan as well, uh, where there's a, a real audience for for QAnon theories. Um, You've seen this in Australia, where Australian politics, I think it's fair to say, has been heavily influenced by sort of far right conspiracy theories uh, coming out from Alex Jones um, and and other conspiracists in the United States. And so it, it does speak to how, you know, the US is kind of exporting this around the world, even as the Reichsbürgers are a very specifically German ideology. This question comes from Nadine in Egypt. Nadine writes, I've been watching the developments around QAnon, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other Christian nationalists, and it resembles the development of radical groups in my region. While this is troubling for U.S. domestic policy, I worry more about them going global. There are signs that they are shifting tactics from political dissent to using violence or the threat of violence to achieve political ends, in other words, terror tactics. I fear that they will go global and shift to insurgency. I see a huge surge of support in QAnon conspiracy theories in Egypt across all communities, conservative and progressive, government supporters and dissenters. It's very troubling. So what can you tell me about the potential globalization of QAnon 2.0? This is Roger Parloff. I'm a senior editor at Lawfare, and I'll take a stab at answering or addressing at least the question of Nadine in Egypt which is basically is the globalization of QAnon 2.0, and I'll say of related groups as well, the precursor to new world war type conflict. I'm not an expert on the activities of QAnon or any other groups on the international scene, so uh, I'll just be addressing her question based on what I've seen in the uh, cases of 
the more than 900 criminal cases that have come out of uh, January 6th, and uh, including the Oath Keepers' seditious conspiracy trial. My answer is sort of an on the one hand, on the other hand answer. The first hand is the good news that most of the groups we're seeing in January 6th are uh, highly decentralized. They're very loose coalitions of almost lone wolves. And in addition, you see an awful lot of instability of different kinds among these people, PTSD, substance abuse, depression, paranoia, uh, and maybe other issues. The Christian nationalism, to me, in, in my humble opinion, seems to be the key thing that might describe most of the people who participated criminally in January 6th. And yet there, for, for instance, there's no umbrella church. In fact, you know, nobody really self-identifies as Christian nationalist. That's just something, a word we use, uh, outsiders use to describe this phenomenon. And so no centralized authority there for sure was giving any orders uh, other than on uh, January 6th, uh, Trump himself, President Trump. And the same with QAnon. It's a very loose group. Many people deny being members of it or adherence to it, whatever it is. Some people use its terms and then deny being involved and say they were using the terms cynically to manipulate others, and then you see them using them again. It's sort of like uh, General Flynn is a good example. Uh, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, was another. Uh, are they really members or not? But in any event, it's the same phenomenon. There's a, It's a very loose group. There's no specific leader. And it, on January 6th, there was no leader except uh, Trump. No one was giving orders except Trump. The Oath Keepers did have a leader, but uh, a very small number of uh, devoted followers. People flowed in and out of that group uh, very rapidly for the most part, with and very, very few uh, loyal, devoted followers. So the good news is there's no large disciplined army out there uh, devising a coherent plan overthrow democracy. The bad news is what we saw on January 6th, which is that this decentralized ragtag group of uh, lone wolves can be called up very rapidly by a charismatic leader, in in that case Trump, and who sort of instantly uh, uh, built of them a very unified and dangerous violent force simply using social media. So that's a powder keg. It's still there, and uh, it's very dangerous. And it it might possibly be more dangerous in the U.S. because of our very robust First and especially Second Amendments. Uh, the First Amendment makes seems to, seems to make it very easy for a coup leader to summon a violent uprising over social media the way uh, Trump did so long as he just watches his words and cynically drops in the word peacefully uh, now and then. Now, maybe things are going to change and we will see the Department of Justice uh, challenge uh, whether Trump was entitled to 
use the language he did. Maybe he will be uh, indicted for inciting insurrection, but we'll have to watch. Of course, the more important factor is the Second Amendment. And uh, so in our country, a very large percentage of the lone wolves I've just described already have AR-15s or something almost as deadly. And the state laws permit them to stockpile those weapons, as the Oath Keepers did uh, just across the Potomac River in, in Virginia, into an arsenal. And, of course, even without firearms, and this is the bad news internationally, people uh, can be a, a, a form a very potent force just using non-firearm weaponry, uh, which is what happened on January 6th. Of course, here they were managed to wear body armor and gas masks and helmets and tactical gloves to ward off the police, but they also brought uh, weaponry like... Uh, bear spray, tasers, axes, tomahawks, knives, screwdrivers, axe handles, batons, baseball bats, hockey sticks, crowbars, tire irons, flagpoles, sharpened flagpoles, and spears, and so on. So that's my answer. I I don't have international expertise, but I, I hope that helps. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn 
to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. In what sense or senses would you say the American legal system has failed? For example, has it failed in ensuring equal justice under the law, in protecting a democratic political process against its enemies, 
in preventing and, if need be, punishing corruption in government, in imposing discipline on members of the legal profession who conduct themselves unethically, or in any other ways that occur to you almost two years after the events of January 6th and the end of the Trump administration. Thank you. This is Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare. So this is a really big question, and I have a lot of thoughts about it that would take many, many full podcasts to fill. I'll also say that I think these past few years have, in a lot of ways, shown us how effective the legal system has been. But I'm not going to dodge the question because there are definitely ways in which the legal system has failed. There's no question in my mind, for example, that equal access to justice is a huge problem in this country. And there's a lot to say there, but I'm just going to focus on two things to fit into the time that I have. The first is that in some moments, I've really feared that the legal system has failed to demonstrate its worth to the public. We actually had a debate along these lines on Lawfare this past July, which was before the news had come out about federal investigations into Trump and his inner circle. My colleague Quinta Jurassic and I wrote a piece arguing that the Department of Justice needed to be thinking more carefully about its role in society today, where the public's faith in government is at an all-time low. And our colleague Ben Wittes wrote a piece arguing that everyone needed to calm down and let DOJ do its job because this was a complex investigation and those take time. And the thing is, that's true, but we weren't arguing that DOJ needed to indict Trump or prematurely announce whatever investigations it may have ongoing. We were arguing that DOJ needed to be doing more to acknowledge the uniquely dangerous moment we're in for our democracy and play an active role in restoring the rule of law, which is in our system the cornerstone of democracy. It's not enough in the aftermath of an insurrection which is by definition an effort to topple government as we know it, to quietly revert back to the status quo. We as a society need to be affirmatively reasserting the legitimacy of how we order ourselves. And I think that DOJ and other legal institutions need to be at the lead when it comes to the rule of law. There's definitely something to the legal maxim that justice delayed is justice denied, And in this context, I'd put a slightly different gloss on it, which is justice too far delayed risks justice becoming impotent because there's damage done in the waiting in terms of the public sense of whether the rule of law is real or just a tagline. And that damage isn't going to just magically vanish no matter what the ultimate outcome is. So all of that said, I don't actually think DOJ is failing. I think it could be doing better. And I think that legal institutions nationally could be doing better on this front. My bigger disappointment is actually with the legal profession itself. And I'll just start this second one by saying that after the Saturday Night Massacre, when Nixon fired Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, the American Bar Association's president put out a statement that ran in newspapers all over the country And I was prepared to answer the question by lamenting the fact that we hadn't heard that sort of statement after January 6th. But then I checked, and it turns out that the ABA's then-president did in fact issue a statement on the 6th. But it was a fundamentally different statement. 
it called on Trump and others to condemn the violence and put a stop to it. And it defended the legitimacy of the election and the processes by which it was conducted and then challenged. But the ABA statement after the Saturday Night Massacre wrote a scathing critique of Nixon's assault on the rule of law. It took an affirmative stance on the rule of law. And we're not seeing those kinds of statements from professional associations in the same way today, even though the conduct we're seeing today involves what I think is much more of an existential threat to democracy. We're not even seeing the profession enforce its own rules to the degree that I think it should be. We see courts that are sanctioning lawyers with scathing opinions, like Judge Parker's order sanctioning Sidney Powell and others who are involved with the baseless lawsuit in Michigan alleging election fraud. The judge wrote this was a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process. But bar associations seem really far behind in disciplining lawyers. You know, judges can fine lawyers, but bar associations can investigate their conduct and write reports holding them to account and subject them to discipline up to and including disbarring them. And it may sound naive to say, but we are a self-governing profession that is supposed to be holding itself to a higher standard of honesty and public service and duty to uphold the rule of law. You know, we have to take an ethics class to pass law school, an ethics exam to pass the bar exam, an ethics investigation in some states to be admitted to the bar. And then we have to take ethics continuing legal education courses for our entire careers if we want to practice law. And a lot of us take those responsibilities really, really seriously. So it's hard to see so many lawyers, especially in positions of special public trust, act in ways that seem to unambiguously violate their ethical obligations, and then hear nothing from disciplinary committees or hear nothing until years later. There's no question that everyone accused of misconduct deserves due process, and that can take time. But when it doesn't seem like the authorities are taking affirmative steps to enforce our own professional standards, I think it's a dereliction of duty, and I do think that that is a failure. This next question comes from a listener named Dan, who's curious about the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Dan writes, I would expect that the system of classifying a document would include creating a record of its existence and content, and that managing classified documents would entail creating records to track where or in whose custody they reside. With that in mind, I'm puzzled at reports of documents being, quote, found at one location and then another, and the uncertainty of what is yet to come. Shouldn't the National Archives be able to generate a clear list of classified documents in Trump's possession and demand their return? Shouldn't legal action be possible against Trump to force him to produce documents in his possession? Considering national security implications of some of these documents, could subpoenas be issued at diverse locations in order to find such documents? And finally, why wouldn't the National Archives push to do all of this as early as February 2020? Hey, Dan, this is Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson taking a crack at your very thoughtful question, which I think gets at the heart of a lot of the issues at the center of the Mar-a-Lago investigation, but may be a little too optimistic in terms of how our government handles classified information. To put it in kind of broad terms, um, classified information kind of can fit into kind of two categories. There are different types of classified information that are 
available to broad swaths of the federal government. This is often because it's necessary for the work of different components and a variety of individuals across the federal government. And this is often stuff that's classified, but is of kind of a lower classification level or less specific classification level. So if you recall the Chelsea Manning case from several years ago, that was a case where a private in the army was able to access a classified database and download a ton of those documents um, and then transfer them to WikiLeaks. You know, and that was actually that was eventually discovered, and they did find forensic evidence of that. But it didn't immediately set off alarm bells, um, precisely because those sorts of intelligence uh, resources that Manning accessed um, were designed to be accessed by broad numbers of people, and they don't have those sorts of specific controls of the sort that you're kind of envisioning in place. As you get into more specific name programs and labels and specific types of designated classified information that's only intended for a much more select universe of individuals, those controls do sort of ramp up. And it really varies on the type of program, how it's structured, who has access, which agency is implementing it, or touches on it in a variety of ways, um, without getting into more detail than, than is really appropriate here. Needless to say, there are a variety of controls that can be put in place that allow for, among other things, forensic measures to say, okay, who accessed this and why to various degrees, although it varies a bit in these sorts of programs. But it does run into certain barriers, and a lot of those barriers exist in the White House. First and foremost, a lot of senior people in government still like to work on paper. That's what they like to read things on. And so things of things get hard copy printed. And while there may be systems in place to track when something is printed and who prints it, what then happens to the hard copy obviously is something that isn't super easy to implement. There's no chips <laughs> tracking the classified documents and hard copy around, at least that I'm aware of. So that itself can create some complications. And, and maybe it's a reason why hard copies are a bit of a security risk people may be moving away from. Certainly in this case, it sounds like most of what the FBI recovered from Mar-a-Lago, if not all of it, were hard copies. So that's just that sort of problem there. Uh, and we know former President Trump liked to work in hard copy a lot of times, not somebody who ever really sat in front of a computer um, reading things. On top of that, it also, they run to an obstacle at the president. Um, classification generally is a product of executive order of president presidential responsibility. And so the president, theoretically, and, and often in practice, really has a lot of discretion about how classified information should be handled. And people, certainly people within the administration that, you know, see him as the political leader and are politically and professionally inclined to follow his direction, are unlikely to push back on those sorts of theories. Maybe some career people would to some degree, but they're not usually the only ones with access to this sort of information. I think it's a confluence of those two things that really came to bear in the Trump White House, it seems, where, you know, people were printing off copies of these documents, maybe for the president, seemingly for the president, people close to him. Um, at that point, they kind of lost copies of it. But the president was seen as having that responsibility and authority to kind of handle that classified information when he was in office, the way he thought was appropriate. Um, because again, all of the rules governing that came from his authority. And the fact that he chose to, not to really abide by those rules is a problem, but not one that was clearly actionable or one that people felt empowered to enforce within the White House or other parts of the federal government. When he became an ex-president, that became a big issue because then the Biden administration, the FBI, did feel like they had an obligation to enforce those restrictions and requirements. Your question as to what, what steps NARA could have pursued to get the return of these legal documents and why didn't they, I think are good ones. It's worth bringing in mind, NARA actually as far as we're aware from the public record, it looks like they ID'd the absence of some of this classified information, possibly through exactly the sort of record keeping and forensic processes that you're kind of describing here pretty early on, as early as April or May 2021, after former President Trump left office. 
And then they engaged in a long voluntary process with former President Trump through his lawyers, through which they were trying to get them to voluntarily return some of these documents. That lasted all the way into the early years of 2022 and early months of 2022 and even a little bit after that to some degree. And it's had some success. I mean, they, they eventually did get a big tranche of records back in January 2022 or December 2021, around that time. That includes some classified documents and not classified documents that were supposed to be given to NARA. Could they have gone to the DOJ and said earlier, hey, we think you should subpoena this. We think you should legal process for this. They could have. I don't know how susceptible or open the DOJ would have been to that for the simple reason that taking legal action against a former president is really politically and legally challenging and politically super sensitive. And my suspicion is, and I think this is probably the right approach, is that DOJ would want to put themselves in the strongest possible legal position before pursuing subpoenas, which they did ultimately do in the middle of 2022, or search warrants, which they did later once they determined what they believed were a failure on the Trump former President Trump's part of returning all the classified documents requested in the subpoena. Before they took those somewhat more dramatic steps, and could pursue them with confidence a court would allow them to pursue it, they built a strong, strong record showing we've gone to former President Trump multiple multiple times, showing evidence saying we have good reason to think you still have these records. Please search for them. Please give them back to us. And even going so far as getting a certification, I believe in response to the subpoena, saying from his lawyers, you know, our understanding is that these are all the records that we have. But the FBI was still confident enough to execute a search warrant and get that license and say, no, we actually have good reason to believe there are more records out there. Again, that might be precisely because of some of the forensic and document tracking procedures you described that might be in place. Might be My guess is it may be part of that. It's also probably part of other investigatory tools and steps they've taken, like talking to former President Trump staffers, things like that. But regardless, there are these really substantive controls about handling this type of information. They're not perfect. They're far from perfect. Um, very few things in government are perfect, but they are there and they're substantial. And there are a reason why this information usually is protected fairly well, but they fall apart when the president chooses not to respect and abide by them. And that's what we're seeing play out in Mar-a-Lago, where that person is now a former president and may well face legal consequences for their actions. This question comes from Matt, who asks, Given the software supply chain attacks that we've seen in the past year, should policymakers be thinking more about how and under what circumstances to impose software liability? As a software professional, I can see, at a minimum, the cost of testing and quality assurance services in the industry would skyrocket, as would a new sector of compliance management. While I think the chances of this happening anytime soon are vanishingly small, my question to the group is to consider that national security implications of software vendors and open source projects shouldering more accountability for catastrophic and maybe not so catastrophic defects that could be leveraged for exploits in the future. This is Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare. I think it's first important to acknowledge that software liability is not a new topic. It's been discussed in policy circles and academic journals for a long time, and it can be a fraught issue. Our national security is certainly improved when our software ecosystem is more secure. But I think it's most useful to approach such security and related liability issues in a holistic way, as has been suggested by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Part of that holistic approach is a recommendation made by the Commission that Congress should pass a law establishing that final goods assemblers of software, hardware, and firmware are liable for damages from incidents that exploit known and unpatched vulnerabilities.
The commission says that the final goods assembler should be the entity that enters into an end-user license agreement with the user of the product or service and is most responsible for the placement of a product or service into the stream of commerce. So the commission here is seeking to assign responsibility to those entities that are in the best position to address known and unpatched software vulnerabilities. The premise of this recommendation, of course, is that the development of patches and their distribution is a key element in eliminating the risk that software vulnerabilities can pose across the ecosystem. As the question rightly acknowledges, leaving vulnerabilities unpatched can harm our national security. And when a software vulnerability is found, users are reliant on software vendors to develop and issue a patch. This is not something that they can do for themselves. So in making this recommendation, the Commission emphasizes that to date, there has not been a clearly defined duty of care for final goods assemblers in their responsibilities for developing and issuing patches for known vulnerabilities in their products and services, the timeliness of those patches, and maintaining a vulnerability disclosure policy. To encourage final goods assemblers to shorten the vulnerability lifecycle by more quickly developing and issuing patches, the Commission believes that there should be a clearly established duty of care in the law. So how would this duty of care manifest in the law? The Commission calls on Congress to enact legislation establishing that final goods assemblers of software, hardware, and firmware are liable for damages from incidents that exploit vulnerabilities that were known at the time of shipment or discovered and not fixed within a reasonable amount of time. And to provide a bit more specificity in terms of the time frame, the Commission recommends that the law should establish expectations that final goods assemblers are responsible for producing security patches for as long as the product or service is supported, as disclosed at the time of sale, or for a year after the last function-enhancing patch is released, whichever is later. This question comes from Lior in Israel, who asks, One of the charges in the trial of Benjamin Netanyahu, the past and current Prime Minister of Israel, unfortunately, is regarding him getting many high-value gifts from a very wealthy businessman who in return enjoyed using this relationship for his own businesses and probably as a door opener around the world. Decades ago, this man's chemicals company was involved deeply as a cover for operations by the Israeli intelligence community. This was the way he became very close to Shimon Perez and later with Netanyahu and other politicians and officials. So what can you say about the practice of the intelligence community using real corporations as covers in their operations? First of all, Lior, it was great to meet you in Jerusalem the other day. And for listeners who read Dog Shirt Daily, Lior is the gentleman who had an amazing spread sent up to me in my room at the David Citadel Hotel in Jerusalem, uh, about which I wrote. Uh, Lior, the answer to your question is that the relationship you're describing is pretty unusually Israeli, I think, in the specific sense that when the U.S. intelligence community engages or operates through a private company, 
it almost certainly would not give rise to a relationship between the head of that company and principal politicians. There's just more distance in the U.S. between uh, politicians and cooperating companies or entities in the intelligence context. Uh, that said, is it common for uh, the United States and other countries' intelligence services to use private companies as cover? The answer is yes. So we know of lots of instances in which, for example, the CIA sets up private companies as cover for operations. Uh, including famously in the movie Argo, which is largely based on uh, true events, uh, the film production company for the fake movie that was uh, going to be not made in order to send a crew into Iran to evacuate hiding U.S. embassy personnel. That was a company set up by the CIA. Similarly, we know of uh, companies that were used in the CIA's secret prison and interrogation program, particularly in the uh, interrogation department. Uh, and also, I believe the, the planes, the contractors uh, were private entities. And then, of course, the CIA also set up a uh, famously set up in public, a not-for-profit uh, venture capital company called Incutel, which, you know, invests in all kinds of technologies that may be interesting from an intelligence point of view, including uh, most famously uh, provided, I think, some of the seed money for Palantir, which, of course, has become an enormous product, both domestically and abroad. And then, in addition, I have no doubt that the uh, agency has sometimes with the company's uh, collusion, sometimes with the company's unwitting, planted people abroad in the context of companies that it does not have a direct relationship with. That said, I do think there are some things that are unique about, or at least unusual, about the Israeli experience here. Uh, one of them is that the intelligence community and the Israeli tech sector are extremely intertwined, partly because of Israeli military service, uh, partly for other reasons. And so there's a very close relationship there. The other reason is that the Israeli government has actively gone to bat for Israeli companies that are involved in the, in the surveillance tech world, uh, a lot of whom involve former, uh, espionage people. So the, the NSO group, for example, some of these other uh, surveillance tech companies that are, you know, particularly doing business in the Gulf clearly are, have intertwined relations with uh, government actors, uh, although they are private companies. That really does not happen in the United States in the same way. So I think the, you know, the circumstance that you're describing is probably not something that would happen here. Although I do think that there are, you know, particularly in the technology space where NSA has relations with technical providers that are 
uh, uh, very deep, and there are certainly circumstances in which private sector actors are used as cover in overseas operations. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.